You're listening to episode number 116 of the Leading Wild Green podcast. I'm your host, Pierre Quinn, and my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Nashater Dow Solheim, author of the new book, The Leadership Pin Code. And before we jump into the conversation with Dr. Solheim, just want to thank you for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast. Your reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, your shares on social media, your comments and emails have have been a tremendous support on this leadership journey. And I want to thank you for continuing to listen and support in all that you're doing to work toward becoming a better leader each and every day. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Nashater Dow Solheim, who brings a new toolkit to leadership development that is packed by decades of integrated experience in the areas of business and psychology. As a former forensic psychologist with clinical research in the neuropsychology of criminal minds, she developed a deep interest in effective learning strategies for lasting success. Now, Dr. Solheim is an expert negotiator who studied at the program on negotiation at, at the Harvard Law School, and she's combined her experience as an executive leader in international private companies and government ministries to present her new book, The Leadership Pin Code, The Definitive Guide for Helping Business Leaders Secure Influence and Impactful Results. Here's my conversation with Dr. Nashater Dow Solheim. My guest on this episode of the Leading Wild Grain podcast is Nashater Dow Solheim. Thanks for being my guest today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to be with you. So, so take us back. When did you first become or develop an interest in psychology? Oh, now you're taking me back here. So I studied as a psychologist from really leaving what you would call high school. So I was 19 years old when I went to university and was interested in studying psychology and became a clinical psychologist through my first education to actually getting a doctorate in clinical psychology. And what I wanted to specialize in was working with extreme personalities or people with extremely challenging, um, shall we say, either characteristics or, or backgrounds. So I decided to be a forensic clinical psychologist. So working with offenders who, in this case, also had psychiatric problems and were locked up in maximum security for very dangerous offenses. So when I hear forensic psychologists, I think of here here in the United States, these crime dramas right. where you have have the criminal and the forensic psychologist comes in and there's this conversation and then there's this huge revelation afterwards. Help, help uh, our listeners understand what what really happens in forensic psychology and what was that experience like for you? So that's great because I think most people's experience of forensic psychologists is probably something they've seen on a TV drama or, or I often get asked if it's anything like Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say not really. I, as with all great television, it's dramatized and there's probably a lot added in to, to make it sound even more exciting than perhaps the daily reality of our work. So what it really involved for me was working with in a hospital setting, even though it was a maximum secure environment, meaning that the offenders I worked with were very dangerous as a result of the crimes they'd committed. So they, they needed to be protected, or society, I should say, needed to be protected from them. And at the same time, they were suffering with some kind of mental illness that may have had a role in 
why they committed their crimes. And our role as forensic clinical psychologists was to both help understand and treat the mental illness that they were presenting with. But the forensic part of it was really to understand why they had committed the crimes they had, what Mm. had led to those decisions that they'd made, what kind of background or childhood factors may have contributed to their later life experiences, and then the decisions they took to actually commit the crimes they did. And really what we were interested in was having dialogues with these offenders, patients we would call them in this case, and building trusting rapport with them so that they would open up to us and share their stories and share information that we needed to be able to assess their risk of maybe committing those crimes again. And what we were interested in is making sure those crimes weren't committed again. And if we could find out if there were any factors in their background experiences of childhood that we could perhaps help to mitigate for other people, that we would prevent maybe other people from taking those same routes. So really what forensic clinical psychology is about is understanding what kind of personality factors and background factors contribute to somebody's later life experiences and decisions to commit crime and assessing the risk and probability of that occurring and then trying to manage that risk. It certainly isn't the case, as you might see on television Mm -hmm. um, and in these films, something that happens in the course of one or two hours and a great conversation or in a couple of meetings. I would say I typically worked with these people who are at the extreme end of the spectrum for several months and in many cases, several years before we really had a great understanding uh, and insight into both what contributed, but also how we might manage it going forward. So that's a great segue into uh, how you use these skills in your speaking to and training leaders. But before before we pick that low-hanging fruit, I want to come back and ask you, what, what did the experience teach you about yourself, uh, this background in training, doctoral work in psychology, and then working with offenders in this clinical setting? What, what did you learn about Nashiter? That's such a great question. You know, it, it really is a humbling experience, I would say, because you are working with people who have had incredibly challenging, traumatic, um, often quite... Uh, what would I say, perhaps even tragic personal experiences early on in their lives. And something that you may not obviously haven't experienced yourself, but you need to, in a way, empathize with. And what I mean by empathy, and it's very different to sympathy, is try and understand from their perspective how they viewed the options they had available to them, how that then led to the choices that they felt they had and the decisions that they then made. And it's not about giving them excuses or providing them with justifications for what they did, but just trying to understand the world that they were in and therefore the opportunities they felt they had available to them or not. And in doing so, it teaches you to be very curious, to be non-judgmental, as much as you can feel that way when you're sitting across uh, the room from somebody who's committed heinous crimes and to try and show empathy and understanding even when it's challenging some of your own values and your core beliefs. So I think it taught me a lot about being staying curious, trying to stay non-judgmental, and really trying to look at the bigger picture in terms of what is this role that I'm in serving as 
in terms of a greater good, if you like. I'm here to try and help both this person, but more so society in making sure that we don't have people commit these offences again. So I think I, I learned a lot about those three things, humility, curiosity, and being non-judgmental. What does, what does self-care look like in that context? Um, because sometimes we have leaders, uh, and if a leader is, is really connected to their people, they might not necessarily be uh, a psychologist or have studied right. social sciences, but there is this sometimes an exchange where the, the staff person, the senior executive comes to the CEO or they have this group of individuals and they're sharing and the CEO is sort of taking and collecting and holding and trying to keep everyone on the same page and, and, and empathic. Mm-hmm. What does self-care look like in that context? Where, where does a person who has that responsibility put all the stuff uh, that they carry or, or pick up uh, from their team? So I, I talk a lot about this with my leaders, actually. They're typically senior leaders or executives who have a lot of people either reporting into them or large organizations that they're responsible for. And so they're having multiple conversations where they're absorbing a lot of information and certainly might be exposed to, in their very senior responsibility, managing incidents or scenarios or individual conversations, which they have to carry the weight and burden of responsibility of listening to that and, and, and taking that somewhere. And I talk in my book very clearly about it's important to be authentic. It's important to show your vulnerability. And if you, if you feel sad, it's okay to show that you're sad. If you feel stressed, it's okay to, to let people know that you feel stressed. But to the extent that you don't burden them, we're taking responsibility for managing that for you. So I call it relevant vulnerability. And so what do you do with the part of you then that does feel like you want to really show how stressed you are, maybe cry, maybe stamp your feet, shout out loud. And really it's not appropriate for you to do that with your team or burden them with taking on that and handling that for you. So I encourage leaders to find either an objective advisor and that can be somebody like either HR in your organization or a coach that you work closely with an advisor that you might have in your team or available to the wider team that you work with but to find somebody who's maybe one step removed from your direct role and responsibility and department that you can have an open and trustful conversation with and let them know because they will have had those conversations with other people you won't be the first person that they will be listening to or or empathizing with that is dealing with these stressful conversations or scenarios. And if you don't find anybody in your organization, and certainly CEOs, I think, often struggle with what I call being lonely at the top. They don't have peers. They are the CEO. And they may not feel that they have somebody within their organization they can impartially share that with without fear of judgment or, or or you know, some kind of reputational consequence. So then we encourage them really to have an external independent advisor and somebody they can lean on who they can share in confidence their whole vulnerability and be upset, but also know that that will be something that is supported. They will have some kind of feedback and coaching on how to handle those emotions and somebody who's just there for them without it interfering with their daily work. How, how much is does the conversation include as as a consultant as an advisor 
in your capacity? How much does it include the the investigation? Maybe that word is a bit too strong, but the inquiry into a person's childhood and and their formative years. I know, and from forensic psychology and dealing mm-hmm. with offenders, it, it's you know pulling together the pieces and saying what were the factors that led up to them exhibiting these behaviors. Right. Is that something that is an okay conversation to have from from a consultant advisory standpoint? So I'm glad you bring this up because I make a very clear distinction uh, and I think it's an important ethical distinction between what is therapy and what is coaching or advisory. Mm-hmm. And in the capacity of being a forensic psychologist, I was a therapist. I was a trained, accredited and qualified therapist. So was using models uh, and skills and techniques that I had been trained in and was qualified to use within that setting and, and for those purposes. And as I work as a coach and advisor now, it's not therapy. So I'm not really there to get into people's you know, deep, past to start making interpretations or or investigate or dig into you know childhood experiences and potentially maybe upsetting or traumatic experiences because that's really the role of a therapist and should be done so with with that agreement and with that contract and with the boundaries and uh, explicit agreement that that's what we're going to talk about in coaching and advising it's really about what is happening for you at, in your work environment now? What are you struggling with or interested in learning more about? And how can I help you? What I will say, though, Pierre, is there will be times when people, and very recently, in fact, a leader said to me, you know, when I'm worried about, she was talking about an environment where she entered a meeting with, and she was the only woman in the meeting, a lot of very senior men. And she felt immediately that she was going to be perceived as being incompetent. And we explored where that comes from, the feeling of incompetency. Did she actually have the skills and experience to be in that meeting? And of course she did. Um, But she identified for herself immediately that it, it went back to a very early experience for her of feeling judged as incompetent earlier in her life. So if my clients take themselves there themselves, we can make a, 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 what I call a, a light link to, well, okay, so this comes from somewhere else in your past. So to what extent is it still relevant for you now? Do you need to hold on to that belief? Do you need to carry on holding on to that idea of yourself? Or is that really outdated now? Because now you're older. Now you're you know, the CEO or the VP, or you've got 13 years of experience of doing this. So is it still relevant to see yourself as incompetent in these settings? So it's certainly not about a deep analysis in the therapeutic sense, but it may be relevant to make links to earlier experiences. And they don't often or don't always go back to childhood. It might only be the last role that you had that we're linking back to. But to make sense of where this is coming from is certainly relevant in coaching and advising. I would argue that perhaps if you're new to coaching and advising, it's something to steer away from unless you really feel that you have had a training um, or some kind of qualification that sets you up in a good way to do that in a safe way for you and the client. At what stage should a person who's in the workforce begin to consider having a coach or or even even pursuing a, a, a conversation with a therapist? Is that something that you suggest that, you know, right after college or university getting adjustment, adjusting to the grief of leaving university and then entering into the workforce? Is this something I should do 
once I become an executive or middle manager? At what stage should I make these considerations? So this is very dependent. I think it's very dependent on really what you're wanting out of having a conversation with somebody else other than your peer group, who else is available to you in the work environment or, or education environment, if it's a university, for example, that, you know, we have a, I have a lot of people I lean on for advice and support in my world. I'm sure you do, Pierre. You know, we have good friends, we have relatives, we have mentors and advisors, informal maybe, that we go to with our questions and our challenges as they arise. And I think that natural supportive network is the place to start. Uh, there's a ton of people around you that might have had experiences that they can share with you that will help you solve the situation or the, the challenge that you're facing, answer the question that you have. And what I encourage people to do when it comes to paid for coaching or taking on a personal coach or advisor is really think about what it is that this person and the person's qualifications and history that you're, you're choosing to go with, what it is that you want to get from this process. And it is a process. So what is the goal the, for the outcome? What do you want to achieve? What would success look like for you if this was a successful process with this, therapy, uh, with this coach, I should say? And based on that, be very clear about how you're going to engage this person for how long and what the outcome should look like. It's very easy for people to get into long, what I'd call unstructured and without focus dialogues with coaches and advisors which can be very supportive at one level, but may not be helping you to achieve the goals that you want to. So I really encourage people to be very clear about what it is I want from this conversation. What are my goals and how will I know that I've achieved those? So what will success look like at the end of it? So I don't encourage people to just, you know, as soon as you leave university, go into your first role, have a coach straight away. It's the only way you're going to learn far from it. I think you'll learn a lot from having great mentors who are available around you. I encourage people regularly who come to me and say, uh, I, you know, I'm in my first job. What do you think? Should I get a coach or a mentor? I'm like, you know what? Why don't you see if there's somebody that you admire, inspired by in your work environment right now and approach them. People are very flattered. If Typically, I, in my experience, they're flattered if you go to them and say, you know, I'm inspired by the way you handle this situation or the role that you have. Would you be interested in mentoring me for a period of time so I can learn really about how to navigate this new environment I'm in or tackle these challenges? So I've certainly had a mentor myself um, on, on more than one occasion, and it was inside the organization I worked with, and they were incredibly experienced individuals, not directly involved in the work I was doing, so they could stand uh, from the outside giving me a perspective perhaps that was different to my own and help me navigate some of those new projects and new situations I was in. Very, very valuable. Where a coach would be beneficial is where it's really about your personal development. And if there's something that you want to improve in the way, in your skill set, in your understanding or your perspective, how you handle different people, it can be how you tackle conflict, conversations, how you motivate other people, how you create influence. Sure, then I think it's useful to have a coaching relationship and a process which you can really dig into helping you identify your toolkit for being able to show up in a more effective way. You're, you're, you're giving us some incredible insights uh, in, the, in this conversation and I hope the people who are listening really take it to heart and, and not just take it to heart, uh, 
really dive into the insights that you share in your book, The Leadership Pin Code. What was the 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 avatar or the the ideal person you had in mind when you started writing this book? Well, I'm going to say that what it started out to be also changed during the process of writing. And I, I think a lot mm-hmm. of writers might say that, that you start out with a very clear idea about who you think you're writing this for. And as you start to write, that changes and adapts as you realize that some of the challenges you're describing are not unique to the avatar that you started out with. Mm-hmm. But I started out with, because of the way I was working and my own background, I'd worked my way up into executive positions and I was also an executive coach. And so I was surrounded by people who I could see were, I call them lonely at the top. They were senior executives, not necessarily getting the kind of feedback uh, and having the kind of conversations I thought would be helpful them, uh, to, for them to have that would make them more effective in the way they worked with other people. So I could see very smart, competent, experienced leaders really struggling to engage their teams. I would see micromanagement in some cases, over-controlling behaviors, interfering in what people did, or maybe just being absent and dismissive of what their teams were were needing. And in some cases, I could see people saying, well, you know what, I've been doing this for 30 years. I don't need to learn anything new. It's my way or no way. You know, I'm the one with the experience. You need to kind of follow my my lead. And I kind of knew that they probably didn't intend to come across the way that they were. But what they were struggling with was really not having any feedback on how they could manage those conversations, manage those relationships, build trust in a more effective, collaborative way. And I started to work a little bit while I was working inside these companies in coaching leaders in what I then went on to write in the book in persuasion, influence, and negotiation skills, you know, navigating political arenas or what I call being more politically savvy at work, understanding that people you influence aren't always the ones with the, with the grand titles. You really need to look at who are people listening to? Who does the decision maker that you're, you're trying to influence? Who are they being advised by? Maybe that's where you need to start. So my avatar was really these senior leaders who I felt probably weren't getting the kind of feedback that would be useful to them, either because they didn't have the opportunity or perhaps, Pierre, they weren't open to it because they felt that they already knew it all. As I started to write the book, however, I, and I was exploring and having conversations with people around my ideas for the book, I became very aware that my avatar actually was more a leader who perhaps was just struggling with building trusting relationships or was feeling misunderstood. And they felt that their intention was not being experienced well by their counterparts, whether that was their employees or stakeholders. So there was a gap between their intention and their impact. And they were kind of confused about why their intention was not being seen or experienced the right way. You, you give us some, well, you just gave us three key words. Uh, if you could help us frame them, because I know we all may have different definitions of them sure. and then the implications of them. You talked about persuasion. You talked mm-hmm. about influence and negotiation. And from your experience and your perspective, can you, can you define those words for us? So what I say about persuasion, influence, and negotiation is that there's some overlapping terminology there, which is why I put them together in the first place. And so rather than giving individual definitions, if you like, of what the three of those, each of those are, what I tend to say is 
Persuasion, influence, and negotiation are the skills that we use in everyday scenarios, in fact. And so we're you know, beyond the business environment and leadership here. It's about how we get somebody else to see our perspective, how we encourage them to maybe take our perspective when we feel that that's important, but in such a way that it creates a win-win and we do it without causing the other person harm or without exploiting them negatively. So we persuade other people to our perspective, but we create a win-win and we have the kind of influence that leaves other people feeling like they had a good experience in this encounter with us. So how do you create a win-win in the paradigm of not liking somebody? (laughs) So (laughs) you you have that difficult uh, direct report or uh, another colleague that you just have to work with and just really, really get under your skin? Is is it possible to create win-win in those situations? And if so, how do you do it? So we're all familiar with that, right? I think it's, I think I say it in the book too. It's a bit of a myth to think that we have to like everybody. We do like everybody all of the time. There will just be for different reasons, people that we don't immediately connect with, whether it's their personality characteristics, they may have kind of mannerisms that irritate us or, or maybe because we're in some kind of conflict scenario with them over a project or a task or a difference of opinion. So what I say is there is always a win-win if we start by looking at what's in this conversation that I'm going to have for the other person. Because what we tend to start with, Pierre, is, look, I'm going to go into this conversation with this person I don't like uh, and I feel irritated by already. And so my mindset is already set up. Mm -hmm. I'm already feeling, you know, perhaps I'm feeling stressed, maybe I'm anxious, maybe I'm already angry or irritated because I don't really want to be having this conversation with this person. So that's going to show up in my physical behavior. That might show up in my facial expressions. It might show up in having a tense body language. It might even show up in the first few words that I utter to this person. I might have an irritated tone. I might jump straight into what I need. And so I am caught up in my own head, as I say, uh, or as I call it. And what I want people to do when they're faced with dealing with somebody they don't like is I want you to try and start from how is this other person feeling right now? So what might be going on for them? And it's tricky because we tend not to want to do that if we don't like somebody. We don't want to give them that opportunity. And we don't feel like we should really gift them with the time and effort of trying to understand their situation. But I really want people to do that because unless this is a really evil person, and I'm not sure that that's what we're talking about here. What, we, what we're really trying to figure out is, so what might motivate this person? What might they be interested in that I can hang my need onto that will also help them? So at work, when we have colleagues we, we maybe don't like, they're also in the same work environment as us. So we do have something in common. We either have the, the big business goal in common, we're working for the same company, Or we might even have closer goals in common, the same department, the same team goals, for example. So try and find something that you have in common early on that you can start the conversation with that takes it away from the personal issue that you have with each other. So you might start a conversation with, you know, let's say this person's called Jane and and you need to negotiate or, or speak to her about getting some help and support on a project. So instead of starting with the irritated tone of, you know, I, I really need some help with this project and, you know, I'm under pressure and, and it seems like you're the person I need to speak to about it. That's immediately going to communicate. It's all about you. You're irritated. It's quite demanding. And so I'd like you to turn it on its head and say, okay, 
Hi, Jane, how are you? Are you keeping busy these days? What what have you got on your plate? Wait for the answer. And then empathize and validate. Okay, yeah, it sounds really busy. It sounds like you're really stressful or stressed or whatever the Jane comes back with. And then go into, you know, what I would really like is if you could help me because I know. And then you'll hook it on to what is this person interested in? And if you know that Jane, for example, loves to be recognized for her competence and really wants to be, you know, rewarded for that then you might start saying you know what I think you've got the right skills you're the best person to help me with this because of your background and expertise and I could really do with some help would you be able to help me out on this now the whole tone of you going in with the humility of asking for help will change your tone of voice it will change the choice of words and I can pretty much guarantee it will change your body language and behavior so in my book I really talk about your ABC your, your advanced preparation or your approach. So prepare yourself before you go and talk to this person who you don't like and you're irritate, irritated by. Address your mindset. So if you assume you're not going to like them and this is going to go badly, it will. But if you decide for yourself, okay, this is a new opportunity to talk to Jane. I'm going to change the way for this conversation. I'm going to approach her. I'm going to put a smile on my face. I'm going to treat this as a fresh opportunity for having a different conversation with her. That will start to show up. And then check your body language. I call it a body scan. Quickly scan yourself. You know, am I furrowing my brow? Am I frowning? Are my hands tense? So just drop every part of the body that looks tense and try and show more relaxed and open body language. And then plan for what your first few sentences will be, how you're going to open in a more collaborative way. So this conversation has a much better chance of going well rather than going in the usual way because at the end of the day whether we like our colleagues or not Pierre we're going to have to work with them at some mm-hmm. point and so the reason I say go to all this effort because I had a coach a leader who said to me in coaching oh this is exhausting Nashta can't I just tell them what I think <laughs> and I said sure uh, and and let's see how far that gets you because you're going to see this person again tomorrow and then the day after and the day after And you can take that other approach if you're never going to see them again and you really don't care about the relationship. I mean, I don't advise it, but sure. But where you're going to work with people and you're going to meet them over and over again, this is an opportunity to invest in that relationship and to try and get it onto a different track, even if it's just for the conversation that you're going to have now. Because we want to build sustainable relationships with people. At some point, Jane may be somebody that needs our help and we might need help from further again down the line. So we don't always want to meet the same people with the same negative feelings. Let's try and turn that around. Share with us a story of maybe a time, and I know you may have to change names and organizations and all that great (laughs) stuff, but a time where someone you were coaching or an organization as a whole really pushed back on the principles that you were trying to get them to embrace and like the individual that said this is exhausting and then over time they came to see the benefit of of really changing their approach and dealing with their people and with each other so i'm going to give the example of a client workshop where i was asked to come in and mediate a conflict um And the leader of this small organization, voluntary organization, had hired me to come in and address the conflict within the management team. And in fact, the management team had also 
had conflict with the board. So there were multiple very powerful people in this room and the conflict had taken place over a number of years and people had started to leave the organization. So they tried to figure this out for themselves and after several years decided they probably needed some expert and external help. And as I started to explain the process to the group who had reluctantly come together, because they certainly didn't feel that anybody was going to be able to fix this, you know, they, they tried everything and they were exhausted. You could see it in them. They were really exhausted by their own efforts uh, and had very little faith and, and um, hope, really, that anything else would make a difference. They resisted and questioned and challenged every aspect of the process that I described that we needed to undertake in order to resolve the conflict. So I had questions during the night by mail, by phone call. Um, I had people dropping out of meetings and changing meetings because really what they were letting me know was how frustrated they were, how upset they were with what was happening and how they had lost faith really in, in anything being helpful. The important part for me was to remain consistent, reliable and predictable. And I talk about that really as being three of the most important characteristics of an effective leader. And not to give in and not to give up when you meet resistance and when people are pushing back because they're testing the boundaries for themselves. You know, can I take any more? Can I put myself through another process? Is it going to be worth it? And they're also testing you. I was being tested. Mm -hmm. You know, so are you, what makes you any different? How are you going to be able to help? You know, we've, we've tried everything. So what's new? And it was important for me to demonstrate now leading this process, if not their leader, at least leading this process for them, that I would be consistent, reliable and predictable. I would turn up even if they said, I can only spare five minutes. Well, I would make the hour available anyway. And if they challenged me on process, I didn't keep changing the process until they were happy with it. I was consistent about, well, this is the right process. This is what I know works and you need to just go with it. And, you know, you can challenge me along the way, but, but I want you to believe in the process and we can evaluate it at the end, but I believe this works. And being predictable was really for me about being consistent in my emotions with them. So not showing them that I was upset or irritated or angry every time they got upset, irritated, and angry, so that they could predict that I would be solid and, and constant in my display of emotion and support. So when they needed it, I was there. And after a few sessions, they started to turn up to the group meetings, albeit in silence for some of them, because they wanted to be there and not miss out, because we had created this environment where we said, this is where the work will be done, and we won't be offering you alternative venues for doing the work. So, you know, somebody had rung me and said, you'll need to come to my home. I was like, well, yes, but then if I do that for everybody, we will never move forward because I'll be spending all my time driving around in a car trying to find you guys. So it's important that we use the arenas we've created. So please come, but you, you don't have to speak, but I would love you to be there. So you don't miss out on what other people are saying. And their curiosity maybe, or frustration or maybe stubbornness, I don't know what got the better of them, but they, they turned up. And slowly and surely, what really turned it, and I think this is really important in this kind of work, is we went back to values. We went back to what are your personal values in solving this situation? What really matters to you? And once we started to talk about our personal values in solving this situation, there was a huge aha moment that they actually shared something in common. 
and now they weren't at opposite ends of the table. They were actually connected to shared values of respect or shared values related to being inclusive and supportive and having uh, collegiate relationships. And once we started to talk about, well, okay, if that's what we have in common and we have a common goal, which is to resolve this conflict, so then really the question is about what do we need to do? What, what would it take if we were successful? So that example for me was really about you may not be the leader directly, you know, the line leader who has direct responsibility for the organization, but you need to lead from where you are. And the behaviors and expectations to you are the same. You need to be consistent. You need to be reliable and you need to be predictable. And I think that's advice that, that anyone in the work world can take and put it to practice that you can lead from wherever you are in the organization. Uh, let me ask you this question before we, we run out of time. Um, I'm walking through the airport and I, and I know we're in, we're in the midst of travel restrictions around the world, but when we get over that and we're walking through the airport and we stop at one of those quaint little airport uh, bookstores right? and I see leadership pen code right there on, on the display, what, what's the reason or some of the reasons why I should pick this book up and read it on the plane? I love that question. Um, firstly, because I, I've never really imagined where my book visually at an airport bookstore, and I think it would be just fabulous if uh, if it ended up in an airport. Because it's for this reason: it's really not a book that you read in one go, and once you've read it, you're done. It's really what I call a handbook, and it's incredibly practical. It's it's written in very simple, plain English, and the reason for that is I want it to be useful. And that was my one goal when I wrote the book. And the publishers asked me, you know, what do you want to achieve with this book, Nashta? And I said, my goal is for it to be useful. So it's broken up into just a very few, very simple chapters where you can dip in on a flight. If you have a half an hour flight or an hour's flight or even several hours, and you'll be able to immediately identify one or two or more things that you can do that by the time you leave the flight, you'll actually be able to implement. They are really very practical. They're not rocket science ideas. And it's me opening my toolbox up from my skills as a psychologist in how I build relationships with people and what I feel are the simple ways that we can help people through smart questions or good body language open up and build trusting relationships. So I would pick it up if you think, well, I've got half an hour and I want to learn one or two things that I can use by the time I get off the flight. I would recommend picking up the pin code. I call this shameless plug time in the podcast. <laughs> it was shameless plug, but I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, so what are the, the other ways? You know, we got some, some ebook readers uh, as well. What are, what are some of the other ways that we can keep up with you, that we can check out more of your work or, or even purchase a copy of your book? So the book is available on a lot of online bookstores. Um, I'll push you towards Amazon dot com or amazon.co.uk as the two that um, I know a lot of people are using right now. You have the option of ebook, audiobook, paperback and hardback. So I did that consciously because I talk about, you know, we learn in different ways. Some people prefer reading visually, other people prefer listening. So I was very conscious to make sure we had different modes of, of delivery on the book available. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, I would love that. Uh, best place is on LinkedIn. So look up my name. And just 
private messenger me on uh, on LinkedIn or on Facebook. And our website is progressingminds.com. So you can also take a look at what we're doing there and ping me there too. So any of those will do and I'll be very grateful for anybody reaching out and I usually get back straight away. Great conversation with Dr. Nashatur Dow Solheim about her new book, The Leadership Pin Code. And in this conversation, we talked about persuasion. We talked about influence. We talked about negotiation. We talked about how leaders can use these skills to gain traction and develop high performing, fully engaged teams. I want to encourage you to order your copy of the Leadership Pin Code. I'll put the links in the show notes so that you can get your copy of the book and also put links so that you can follow up on Dr. Solheim's work. Hey, that's all we have for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.